0: From the Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the lives behind the ideas. I'm Edwina Throsby.
1: We want
0: to deeply connect with other people, like we crave intimacy. There's a widespread assumption that we are all better off in relationships, that you can and must find your soulmate, and that true love conquers all. Mandy Lynn Catron has been aware of the power of love stories ever since her childhood in rural Appalachia in the American South. As the daughter of a cheerleader and a football coach, her family stories read like the perfect American dream. But when the reality of life fell short of these idealised and highly feminised notions, Mandy turned to science to explore what other narratives might be available. From her research came a blockbuster essay in the New York Times, and then a book called How to Fall in Love with Anyone. Mandy continues to write and think about how the powerful narratives from our childhood and our culture can be flipped into something infinitely more interesting. Mandy Lynn Catron, welcome to the Sydney Opera House. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's our absolute pleasure. In your writing, stories are really central. The stories we tell each other and ourselves, the stories we learn from our families and the stories that we learn from our culture. How does the story of your life begin?
1: One of the things I discovered in the process of writing my book is that my the story of my life really begins with my parents' love story. And I'd always been obsessed with their their love story, but I took them getting divorced for me to kind of understand that story and its role in my life. And, you know, they met in rural Appalachia in Virginia in a coal mining town where my mom grew up. And my dad was um, hired as the new football coach at my mom's high school. So he was 22. She was 16. And she had to interview him for the school newspaper. And my mom set my dad up on a date with her older sister. So she's the seventh of eight kids. So she set him up with number six, my Aunt Cindy. And this was such a part of our family history is that my dad and my Aunt Cindy went out and had this disastrous dates that they just like could not have been worse match (laughs) and then my mom and my dad got together my aunt cindy started dating my dad's best friend who was also a football coach and the four of them got married in a double wedding in
0: the church basement i mean that is like a movie straight from the 1970s when it happened it's such a
1: good story and i realized you know i grew up going to my dad was a football coach so i grew up going to football games every Friday night, and I became a cheerleader. Basically, from the time I think I was like five, I had my own cheerleading skirt, and I would go stand at the front of the bleachers with all the high school girls, and I would learn their cheers just by watching. And your mom was a cheerleader too, right? My mom was a cheerleader. And so I was very much like enacting their story, and it
0: gave me a sort of identity in this world that I was a part of. But it wasn't even their story, was it? I mean, what you've described is there's something so all-American about that. It's
1: very American. It's very Appalachian. It really sort of fits within the culture that I grew up in, I think. And and as an adult looking back, I've had to kind of rethink that story. And, and you know, speaking of power dynamics, like really think, like, what does it mean that my dad was a teacher dating a student and... and um, you know, at the time, I think it wasn't uncommon, but really to kind of go back and look at at what was going on there and all the ideas that I absorbed from it or, or sort of planted within that narrative that are so central to my sense of self.
0: What do your parents say about those kind of details which differ or reinforce the myth that had become your foundation family story?
1: Well, what I discovered is that the story that I thought was about them was very much about me and that I had kind of, I had put this story together and I had created this grand romantic narrative and, and their version of it is just like, it's a lot more pragmatic. It's a lot more based on chance and timing. And, you know, I, I said to my dad, how do you feel about the fact that like mom was a student, like, doesn't that seem weird to you looking back now, especially now he's an administrator at the school board office. So his role is very different And he's like, yeah, you know, it probably was was wrong. But at the time, it was such a part of the culture. He didn't have a way, another way to think about it. It was considered normal. But I think in in 2018, um, all of those things look different. And it's important to acknowledge that. Right. But your mom
0: was, what, 16 when she met? She was 16. My dad was 22. Your grandmother was 15 when she married your grandfather. Who was 31. Right.
1: Which is incredible to me. That was another love story that I wanted to really go back and try to understand. And that one is really interesting because my grandmother tells it very much as a kind of Cinderella love story. Which is she talks about, like she literally talks about when my grandfather, who was a returning soldier from World War II, when he smiled that his teeth sparkled. Which is like such a Prince Charming detail if you've ever heard one. Sparkly teeth. Sparkling teeth, right? Yeah, I love that detail. But she tells it as it, as this great romance. She saw him. He was so handsome in his uniform, and he kind of rescued her from a wicked stepmother. Her Her mother had died. She dropped out of school to care for her little brother. Her dad was working in the coal mines. She ran the house at age 11, and um, her father remarried to a woman who didn't want to assume the work of the house. I'm sure it was very complicated. And and my grandmother was angry that she was still having to do all this. And so she ran away and really had no financial resources, had nothing, no one to take care of her. So she was really going door to door, like asking people if she could do their laundry to try and make money. And so she tells this beautiful story of of finding this man and falling instantly in love with him. And my mother tells the story very differently, which is she says, I think mom needed someone to take care of her and that our grandfather kind of knew that he could do that, but also that he needed someone to make a home with and and start a family with. And so, you know, it's interesting to me how the same relationship can be this grand romantic tale, and it can also be a very sort of two people who needed something from each other and found each other at the right place at the right time.
0: Needed something on a practical level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, your grandmother didn't have a whole bunch of choices.
1: She had almost no choices. Yeah, which is what I came to realize. um, You know, I, I went into thinking about her love story as I was ending a relationship and thinking, like, what does she know about how to find someone, how to fall in love, um that I don't right like my my grandfather died when i was 4 and i was interviewing her in my early 30s and i thought okay it's been a it's been 3 decades and she still feels like no regrets about this and she's never been with another man like he's the love of her life and i thought she has something figured out because i have constant doubt and constant like am i with the right person am i making good choices with my relationships And what I found was that it wasn't that she knew something that I didn't. It was that I had this enormous privilege of choice and with choice comes doubt. And she just, you
0: know, it's not like there were a lot of other people. It's interesting. She was very much a product of her economic and social circumstance and her choices were very guided by that. Yeah. But when she describes her life with your grandfather, she perceives that through a romantic narrative, a love Mm -hmm. story. She sees Mm -hmm. her life as a love story, essentially. Yeah, And you did the same thing with your parents. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean,
1: and this is such a testament to the power of love stories, which is that they give us these scripts for how a life might work. And we absorb these scripts and we fit our, the sort of, series of circumstances that happen to make up our life, we fit our, our lives into these narratives as much as we create the narratives in our lives. So um, I think they're really powerful.
0: What was your relationship with your parents like when you were a kid?
1: You know, my parents really modeled a kind of egalitarian
0: marriage in many ways, which I think wasn't
1: that common in the 80s, and especially in kind of rural America. My mom worked. She made more than my dad. They were very good about sharing childcare and responsibilities around the house. And they were very loving. I just felt very parented in a way that I think neither one of my parents did necessarily they came from big families who had few resources and um and they were it was very important to them to offer us opportunities and affection and this sort of like care that um yeah that I that I don't think the generation before necessarily valued in the same way yeah
0: your parents had this um, terrifically equal and loving and supportive relationship. Did you have any inkling that there was a divorce on the horizon?
1: No. No, I was shocked. Um, and I, I, think they're, I think the truth is I, I still don't fully understand it. And what I've sort of come to accept about it is that they probably don't either. Um, I think they were a little bit surprised by it as well. How do you get surprised
0: mutually by a divorce?
1: Um, Because I think we all, and this is probably changing, but we all are sort of sold this narrative, which is that if you are a good person and you don't betray your spouse in any obvious way, you don't cheat on them, you don't lie to them, um, your intentions are good, you're generous with your time and your resources that that's enough that like if you do that then you will be happy with this person forever and I think when that turned out not to be true that was surprising it was surprising to me I I know it sounds naive but I was I was really surprised by that and I think
0: they were too but why is it naive you had no idea
1: I think the thing that sounds naive is is not that I was surprised by their split, but that I had this idea that, like,
0: it was enough to just to just be good and to want things to work. I mean, there's a very, very, very strong set of cultural narratives around that, the happy ever after story, the yeah. Cinderella story, Pretty Woman, all of these things you write about. Yeah. What were the things that were influencing you culturally through your childhood and adolescence?
1: Well, so I grew up in a really homogenous place, so very... Protestant, Christian, um, very white, very middle class. I just didn't encounter a lot of diverse ways of living, diverse ways of thinking. It was that, and it was popular culture, the sort of very mainstream popular culture. And what, what were your favorite movies and your
0: favorite TV shows and oh, books? Yeah.
1: As much as my parents were loving and generous, they, my sort of intellectual life was really my own. When I read books, I read the books I could buy at Kmart. So, like, I grew up reading The Babysitter's Club and, like, John Grisham novels as, like, an 11-year-old and Daniel Steele and just sort of anything I could get my hands on because I loved to read. But Mm -hmm. there was no one to, like, curate these sort of cultural media, this cultural media for me. The movies I loved were like the rom-coms of the 80s and 90s. So like Pretty Woman, Dirty Dancing, I've probably watched like a hundred times. Mm-hmm. Um, Disney, all the Disney movies,
0: all of that kind of thing. What sort of messages were you taking from those?
1: So the messages are, are really normative, which is not a bad thing, but it it meant and continues to mean, I think, for anyone that you get a pretty narrow way of thinking about the world. There's this great word coined by the philosopher Elizabeth Brake called normativity, which I, I love this term. I found it really useful for talking about things. But when it comes to narratives that I absorbed about romantic love, they were very normative, which is basically the idea that the best way to practice love is to be in long-term, monogamous, committed marriage-minded relationship and that that's the kind of love that everyone is implicitly striving for and that is most validated by our culture. And so I absolutely absorb that idea, as I think probably most of us do. Um, But this sort of like conventional nuclear family and um, these values, which are not necessarily bad values, but they're very sort of puritanical American values. right? It's all about, you know, being a good person by being modest, being humble, enacting the sort of gender norms that are prescribed to you by the culture, also sort of striving to achieve social and cultural recognition through really, like, normative means, like yeah. making a lot of money, um, getting a good education. Having a nice house. Having a nice house with a yard. And, and so... I was really excited, I think, to to suddenly get to college and start thinking around some of these ideas. But it was also really hard for me.
0: It's a big shift because there is something that is interesting in what you're describing that there's a sort of moral aspect to happiness. Yes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way to put it. I think there is this sense, and it's especially true for girls, that it is your job to be good and being good looks like meeting other people's expectations being nice being polite never challenging authority enacting a sort of socially prescribed femininity and that narrative I absolutely subscribed to and I was good at it Mm. you know as a teenager I was like I, I was very perceptive to what adults wanted me to be. And I was like, I'm going to be that person. So I had good grades. I joined all the clubs. I was the president of whatever club or vice president that I was a member of. Um, you know, I had a good resume. And I was on track to be the kind of person that I was supposed to be. Um, and I felt so confined by
0: that. Because there's another beat to what you're describing as well. Once you are the good girl and you do all of those things, then at the end of that, you deserve the rewards of normative happiness. You deserve the husband. You deserve the house. You deserve the nice kids and the nice furniture and that stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And when I was 17, I struggled with depression and I – it was really hard because I think my parents were mystified by it. I had everything – That I was supposed to have as a good girl, a good teenager. And yet I wasn't happy. And I had no vocabulary for talking about that or thinking about that. My mom took me to the doctor and the doctor said he prescribed an antidepressant for me. And I actually didn't take it. The other thing that they did is they put me in counseling. And just having someone to talk to who was an adult who just wanted to listen to my frustrations about the world was so valuable i think in many ways that's what i needed
0: but is it also having somebody that you didn't have to perform to
1: yeah what i really needed to be like a happy person was actually just the freedom to kind of reject some of those ideas and and sort of figure out for myself what i wanted my life to be like
0: When you went to college, you still hadn't had a boyfriend. And this wasn't part of your plan, you know, you were the cheerleader. You needed the football player.
1: Yeah, but the football players were not into me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I was like, why doesn't this work the way the narratives have said that it's supposed to? I remember one of my best friend's mothers saying, oh, Mandy, you know, you're too smart. Boys are intimidated by girls like you. And... That really threw me for a loop because I thought, oh, well, I'm supposed to be smart. Like uh, adults like it when I'm smart. But what does it mean that boys don't like it when I'm smart? And what does it mean that my friend's mother has noticed that there are girls that boys like and girls that boys are not interested in? And I'm in the latter category.
0: Did you modify your behavior around boys after that? No.
1: <laughs> the moment I would I would find someone that I was interested in, I would, I would – shut my mouth and and try to show as little interest in them as possible, which is a
0: horrible strategy for finding love. Yeah, if I don't look at them <laughs> at all, then they'll surely know. They'll surely know. Yeah,
1: but, you know, this idea is also something that's in many of our stories, which is that if you're good, you'll be noticed. Right.
0: And that, if you're good and meek and feminine and quiet, yes, you'll be absolutely. noticed. And then yeah. you'll be, like, extra desirable.
1: This is the the Cinderella narrative.
0: When you hit college and you were troubled by your sort of what you describe as your terminal single status, yeah, um, you write, I didn't want a boyfriend. I wanted the social value of being someone's girlfriend. Yeah. They're different things. They're How different do you explain things. that?
1: I had this idea that as a, as a woman, as a young woman, because I hadn't necessarily accomplished much that was visible and valuable to my peers, um, you know, they didn't care about my honor role status. that um, the way to signal to people that I was interesting, that, that there was something valuable about me, was through male attention, the validation of being wanted. And I thought, everybody is just sitting around noticing that I'm not wanted, and they're judging me for it. We assume that people who are single are single because... They've failed somehow in the business of attracting a partner.
0: I think you're absolutely right. And I think, again, popular culture perpetuates those stigmas as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we have phrases like the other half.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Which I hate that phrase. I know. It's awful, isn't it?
0: Yes. (laughs) But this idea that being single or being on your own is, is like automatically and uncritically a lack.
1: Yeah. The true life is less good. You know, when I found, so I was in a relationship from age 20 to 30. And what I found when that relationship ended and I was single for the first time in my adult life was that actually being single was awesome. And it wasn't that I wasn't sad and it wasn't that that ending that relationship wasn't hard. It was, but I loved, I mean, I cannot even, I cannot overstate how much I loved, being in charge of my time. It's just like this freedom that I never had as an adult. And it was so great.
0: That 10-year relationship was with your first boyfriend who you met in college. You talk about the way that you got together. One of the things that strikes me when I read you writing about that is your deliberate passivity in the beginning of that relationship.
1: Where did that come from? You know, I think it came from all the things we've been talking about. This notion that women who have desires, who know what they are, who can name them, um, that they are demanding, shrill, unlikable, unfeminine, all of those things. And I was trying to enact this as much as I consider myself a feminist and sort of had started to encounter some feminist ideology and really felt sort of independently minded in terms of of my career I also felt like if I assert myself um no man would find that attractive
0: mm. how much insecurity were you feeling throughout that time I look back
1: at my younger self and I think I was incredibly insecure in some ways um it's not that I, I had no confidence. I had a lot of confidence in myself in the sort of arenas that I knew I was good at. Like I had confidence in myself as a student. Um, I wanted to be a writer and I thought this is something I can do. But socially, I, I didn't have that same kind of confidence. And I think that um, I was so worried about what other people thought of me and whether or not I was kind of meeting other people's expectations. And I just think... I wasted such an enormous amount of energy on that. But I think a lot of people are like that in their 20s. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah.
0: I think also one of the things that you did through this time, you know, 10 years with Kevin wasn't super easy. You had a very turbulent relationship. But you created a whole lot of narratives around that to explain that. You made Mm -hmm. stories around that were enforced by cultural references in order to explain the massive highs and lows of your relationship?
1: Because we argued so often, I thought, oh, this is probably because we love each other so much because we wouldn't have this intensity of conflict if we didn't love each other. And I think about that really differently now. Um, but the narrative of love that I subscribed to then was this: the the same narrative that is present in so much of our language about love and our metaphors, which is that love is this powerful force that acts on us that's almost violent you know like falling in love is it's accidental love sick or love struck or my favorite one of these is is smitten right which is the past participle of the word smite which is like the in the book of Exodus like God smites the Egyptians with like a plague of boils like that's what we used to talk about feeling in love it's wild to me but but to me I was like I feel feel such extreme highs and lows, that means he's the right person for me to be with. Right.
0: Not like, could we just be happy?
1: (laughs) Not like, oh, but we don't seem to like each other sometimes. (laughs) Like, is that important?
0: (laughs) So eventually after 10 years, you've moved to Canada because he's going to grad school and you find your life there as well. Yeah. And then you break up. And then we break up. What was like the end of it? What was the moment where you went, I just can't do this anymore? What shifted?
1: It was a really drawn-out breakup. So I would say that there were multiple ends. But the moment for me was um, we had this conflict about how to spend our day one Saturday. And I said, this is what happens when you double a book. And he said, I never committed to making plans with you. And it was... The first time I felt like lied to, and I understand now there's this is a gaslighting. I didn't have the vocabulary for it at the time. Um, but it was this moment where I thought, oh, I don't want this in my life. Mm. Um, and a year and a half later, we actually stopped right.
0: talking to each other. So you started dating then? Yes. How was that going back after 10 years in a committed relationship? A lot had changed in the way we date over that 10 years.
1: It's not just that it had changed, but also that I had been, you know, a college student and you just meet people by going about your days, right? And it was a different world. Suddenly dating as an adult and in the era of online dating, which I actually found to be great. Um, you know, I'm like moderately introverted. I'm terrible at chatting up strangers if I don't have some context to talk to someone. Um, so for me, I was like, okay, this I can I can set up a date for myself. And it felt so proactive and I what I needed to do initially was just prove to myself that there were interesting, attractive men who would find me interesting and attractive. I didn't need a relationship. I just wanted to know, like, I could have a conversation with someone for an hour. And online dating was a great way to do that. Mm. And what happened was I made a lot of friends. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you write that um, that you had a sort of shift in attitude at around this time as well, and you realized that your goal on a date was not to make someone like you, but to see if you liked them.
1: Yeah. Isn't that funny? Because... Duh. Like, it's so obvious, right? (laughs) Except it, it had never occurred to me that it wasn't my job to convince people to like me. That actually, I could just be myself and figure out what was going on with someone else. Like, is this someone I want to spend more time with?
0: Did that change the kind of dates you were going on and the friends you were making?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it was great because I thought, instead of saying like, okay, I'm here to find my future husband, I could think... I'm here to really try and engage with this person and that that hour could be a pleasure in and of itself as opposed to a job interview or a future partner interview.
0: Around this time, you're working as a writer and you're doing some research around falling in love and you discover a researcher who has formulated a whole plan. Can you tell us about
1: that? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, because I'm
0: sure none of our audience know no about it heard at of all. This.
1: Yeah. So Arthur Aaron is a social psychologist and um, he and some colleagues, including his wife, who's also a psychologist, Elaine Aaron, were trying to create romantic love in the laboratory. And what they did is they had heterosexual men and women enter the lab through separate doors. Before they came in, they said, this person knows a little bit about you. They're excited to meet you. And then they took turns asking each other 36 increasingly personal questions, stared into each other's eyes for four minutes without speaking, and then left. And rumor had it that one of the couples from that first study got married six months later and invited the whole lab to their wedding. You say rumour has it, though. Mandy,
0: this is science. Like, <laughs> what were the results oh, written it's, up and peer-reviewed? It,
1: so it's really hard to find this information. Um, you can find a reference to this in a paper from 1997, but I cannot find that anywhere. So I don't think it exists, but I have emailed Dr. Aaron about it. So I know that... Uh, the study happened.
0: I love this, though, because what this suggests is that the study happened, but probably wasn't scientifically important enough to be written up as kind of findings for peer review. Yeah, but it's created this fantastic story again.
1: It's amazing and and a version
0: of the study was written up for peer review
1: which is just about creating intimacy, not creating romantic love. It doesn't have the staring in the eyes part, although Aaron has done other research about that. But what they found, they call it the fast friends protocol, but they found across all different groups of people, so they've done it between like police officers and members of a community or people from different ethnic or cultural backgrounds. That it does create this sense of closeness over the course of a couple
0: hours that might take months otherwise. Hmm. You've discovered this um this experiment or this this idea, and at the same time, you've been hanging out a little bit with this guy.
1: I mean, hanging out is an overstatement. so so this guy. This guy, Mark, who's a former student of mine in a creative writing class that I taught. Not a, He's not an undergrad. It was like a continuing studies class. And um, I had sort of stayed in touch with him on social media for like four years. And I saw a photo of him and another guy who was in the class uh, at the art gallery on Instagram. And I just made a comment and he wrote back and said, oh, the exhibition's really good. If you want to go, let me know. And so I thought, okay. Like, I, I was curious about him. I thought he was cute. But I didn't. I'd never spent time with him one-on-one. Yeah. So what was your first date? We went to the art gallery. And then we... He said, oh, do you want to have a beer? And I, I thought, I don't even know if this is a date. I thought he had a girlfriend. Um. And I thought, okay. And we started talking about love, which is not unusual because I wrote about love. Everyone talked to me about it. And he said, I have this theory that you can fall in love with anyone. And I thought, is that true? I don't know. And I remembered Dr. Aaron's study, and so I told him about it. And because I thought he was cute, I said, oh, you know, I've always wanted to try it. (laughs) (laughs) I've always wanted to try Uh it. And he said, oh, let's do it. Just like that. And so we did. So right there in the bar.
0: Right there in the bar. Yeah. So look, we know what happens next. You did fall in love. And from that, you decided that you'd write an article about this, and you submitted it kind of on spec to Modern Love in the New York Times in 2015. Yep. What happened then?
1: I think we, our anniversary, we decided it was like November first. The article came out January 11th. So it's my brand new relationship. I'm writing about it in the New York Times, and it got in the first month. Like 8 million views. So it was just like wildly popular. And I don't take too much credit for that. I really think this idea that there's a mechanism by which you can really feel known by someone else, where you can really feel heard and maybe even fall in love, is an incredibly exciting premise. It suggests that there's a formula. Not only is there a formula, but it provides a kind of alternative to online dating. So like this research has been around for years. It's only recently become super popular. And I I think part of the reason for that is that because of online dating, we have access to like an enormous number of potential partners. But the trade-off of that is that the interactions with those people are often very superficial. As superficial as like a text exchange that never results in a face-to-face meeting. Even if you meet face-to-face, I think it often feels like you're shopping for a partner, which is not very intimate. And this is kind of the opposite of that, which is like really deeply getting to know someone and them knowing you. And I think that timing-wise, you know, I heard from friends that they would see people's OkCupid profile with a link to the article at the bottom saying, let me know if you want to try this. And I think a big part of that was just that, like, we want to deeply connect with other people. Like, we crave intimacy, and um, so much of our digitally mediated interactions disable us
0: from finding intimacy. It also seems like in the digital age, there's a lot more opportunity to project on somebody else your fantasy narrative because mm-hmm. you just don't have all the information to work with necessarily. Yes, absolutely. And that's something that interests me about, about a lot of your writing is this kind of tension between fantasy and reality. You know, this idea when you're a teenager about how your life should be mm-hmm. and then coming to terms with the way it's playing out. Um and trying to reconcile the what should be, what could be with the what is. Yeah. How does that play out for you when you look at your future now?
1: Huh, that's a great question. You know, I, so I published my first book about six months ago, and I absolutely found the experience of publication to be the same thing, which is that I had this fantasy even as much as I consider myself a pragmatic person um, I had this this idea about what it would mean to be a writer and that suddenly I would just sort of arrive in the world uh, on the literary scene and um, in many ways I did have that experience you know I, I got to to do a book tour and um, you know i remember s- sitting at the table at greenlight bookstore in new york the day my book came out signing books and thinking like oh my god this is my life and it just felt like so miraculous and beautiful and it matched the idea i had of mm-hmm. of being a writer um but so many other aspects of the experience are, are just not that right and and i don't know that there's any way that you can sort of psychologically prepare for that. I tried really hard to to be very sensible, but um there is something about the experience of of getting the thing you've always wanted that both is and is not um how you imagined it would be. And you know, I think that was a good experience for me. Like it it was incredibly disorienting and I realized I really had to think about the kind of narratives that I had bought into without realizing it and and which ones I wanted to keep and which ones maybe I wanted to reject, which is the same thing that I try to do in my relationship with Mark. So um,
0: I guess there are a lot of good parallels there. <laughs> so you, Mark's with you in Sydney now. He is, yeah. What's your future together? Um,
1: yeah, our future together is uh, something that we're – constantly negotiating, which is really nice. So um, for us, that means we have a, a relationship contract. I've written about this and and the responses are are diverse. <laughs> some people think it's awesome. And some people think it's the most unromantic thing they've ever heard. But basically, once a year, we sit down and take stock of things. and We say, okay, like, let's operate under the default assumption that we will change and that what we want will change and that we're going to make space for that change. Um, So we talk about everything. And it's so the opposite of um, how I approached love when I was younger. And it's enormously liberating. And I feel heard. Um, I feel that my priorities are his priorities, his priorities are my priorities. Um, I feel like I'm on a team with someone. You know, he's not my other half. He's my teammate. And, um, yeah, it's really,
0: really nice. So, yeah. It's interesting that you did get so much criticism over that when you wrote about the contract that you continually renew with your partner. Because it kind of flies in the face of another cultural story, which is that you can either be cerebral or you can be emotional. And we both know where love fits into that particular cultural binary.
1: Yeah, which is such a shame because um, that's just not my experience of it at all. Um, My friend Carrie Jenkins is a philosopher. She has this great book called What Love Is and What It Could Be. And she talks about the romantic mistake, which is this idea that um, love is inherently unknowable. And she borrows the language from the feminine mistake, right? Which is there's some things we can't know, we shouldn't try to know, and we're better off maintaining our ignorance. And, um, you know, what she found and and what I found is, is that the opposite is true, is that I benefit enormously personally from understanding more about love, being able to think about it with more nuance and complexity. You know, I remember when Mark and I first started dating, like, Lying in bed and saying, "Okay, here's what's happening in your brain right now. Here's sort of like your neurochemistry." And um, oh, that is modern romance. Yeah, right. But it doesn't. It didn't make the moment any less sort of thrilling and romantic. It just thought, "Okay, I understand what's happening. I, it, we still don't understand what it means. You know that your reward system is activated. It just feels good. Do you want to get married?" So this is something that we're trying to figure out. Um, We're going to start a podcast about marriage. And, you know, I found that writing the book really changed my thinking about the institution. I sort of always assumed that it was something I would want to do. Um, But as I began to think about the history of the institution and also you know, the notion that as a woman, it's the most validating thing that can ever happen to you is being being chosen by a man. Um, I began to feel like the only way I could really free myself from that narrative was just to decide not to get married at all. Um, but, you know, we we talk about it and we wonder, is there something that we're missing? But at the moment, we're both sort of on the no side, um, but we're going to interview some experts, mm-hmm. maybe interview our parents and friends, and kind of
0: see where we shake out on the whole thing. Well, whatever happens, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Mandy-Len Catron, it's been so good talking to you. Yes, likewise. (laughs) Mandy-Len Catron visited Sydney Opera House to appear at All About Women 2018. Check the show notes for links to video of her appearance at the festival, and also to her writing. It's a Long Story is back in a fortnight with another episode. The next one features the wonderful author Barbara Kingsolvert, so make sure you subscribe. You can get us from wherever you get your podcasts. It's a Long Story is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas Program. We're produced and edited by Susie Anderson, recorded by Jade Vowles, mastered by Alina Godwin, our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan, researched by Ellen O'Brien, and our executive producer is Jacqueline Booten. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. See you next time.